You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. I should, that's, that's always the official recording in progress. Um, we are coming back to in-person services and uh, we appreciate uh, you being here and we appreciate y'all on, online as well um, and sticking with us uh, through the bumps and the uh, glitches that come in a hybrid setting. But so far, so good. Thanks um, to in-person services. Oh, thanks. I should, that's, that's always the official recording in progress. Um, we are coming back to in-person services and uh, we appreciate uh, you being here and we appreciate y'all on, online as well um, and sticking with us uh, through the bumps and the uh, glitches that come in a hybrid setting, but so far so good, thanks. Bob has done a ton of work, just so everybody knows. Bob is working his butt off to make sure all the audio levels are on both in person and on the computer. It's actually a lot harder than it seems. So thank you, Bob. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get started as we often do by just taking um, a moment and just, just um, focusing on our, on our breath, focusing on our, our bodies here in this place as we often talk about. Um, the world that we inhabit um, is a wild place. Uh, it's, it's, it always has been, and I think uh, all of us have our own list of things right now that um, could cause stress or anxiety or despair or grief uh, at any, any moment of the day that we chose to think about it. Um, and, and on one hand, that's what it means to exist uh, in this world. Um, and on the other, it's also a reminder of us, for us to uh, find ourselves where we are, to enjoy it to the best of our abilities, and to do the work that we can. <clears throat> so with that in mind, would you join me uh, as we get started this morning, just in a, in a centering prayer? God of peace, we come to you today as people who seek um, something. God, we seek justice. We seek peace, the end um, of fighting. We seek uh, the end of oppression. We seek love in this world, God, when it feels like everywhere we turn, we see hate. God, allow us to look inwards to ourselves um, and come to terms with everything we are, God. The ups, the downs, the joys, the sorrows. And may we recognize, God, that in that humanness, we are everything we need. That we have the ability to seek love, to bring peace and grace, to work for justice, 
God, though, though it is anything but easy, um, may you remind us of this calling, may you remind us of our own power, of our own ability uh, to be a people of change, of healing, of transformation. So may you make us into those people each day. May we be brave enough to make those choices every day. Amen. this I can take no more cars erased by burning headlights in the mirror I watch myself Play me a simple song so I can sing along. Cherry blossoms in spring, they mean everything. In my soul I'm making to go Longing for a love I've never known My own life has taken its toll Drunk on whiskey, God don't let me go simple song so I can sing along cherry blossoms in spring and all the joy that it brings cause I've been out on the road driving with no place to go from Cheyenne out to Frisco I'm dying to find me a home Take me 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 home 
blasting battle drums Mockingbirds spoke in tongues Longing for the day to come I set my face, forsook my fears Saw the city through my tears The darkness will soon disappear And be swallowed by the sun well, I am coming home I am coming home I am coming home I am coming Good morning. Welcome again to Central Avenue Church. Really good to see you again in person. Um, and of course, we're celebrating women's history this month, um, something that has been important to us for the long history here at Central. Uh, but we recognize and acknowledge this moment that we set aside. And just as we talked about for Black History Month last week, we have these things and these reminders because we still aren't a part of a culture and a society where these things are self-evident and taken to be just a part of reality. So we acknowledge and set these times, even though we value black voices and women's voices always, um, we especially wanna make sure that during this week, we lift those up. And you hear me talk about this from time to time too, that we know we are a church that is staffed largely by uh, white males and that our ethos and the things that we talk and care about here are very much wider and more diverse than that. Um, but we're a small church and this is where we are at this moment at least. Um, so it's important for us to do those things and recognize that and talk about that regularly so that we can better exemplify who we talk about, who we claim to be, and who we hope the church can be um, always moving forward. This morning, I wanted to share with you a piece of liturgy that is a prayer um, that was written by Diane New. Um, she is the co-founder and co-director of WATER, which is the Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics, and Ritual. Um, and it's very short, but it's about the acknowledgement of um, women uh, all across the world on all seven continents. So let's join together in prayer. Praise to you, women leaders of the seven continents, for your many works of justice. Praise to you, women leaders of Asia, for confronting trafficking of women. Praise to you, women leaders of Africa, for raising your voices to stop AIDS. 
praise to you, women leaders of Europe, for your peacekeeping. Praise to you, women leaders of North America, for confronting economic inequality and racism. Praise to you, women leaders of South America, for struggling against U.S. domination of your land. Praise to you, women leaders of Antarctica, for your scientific research. Praise to you, women leaders of Australia, for supporting indigenous cultures. We lift up the many works that women contribute to here this morning. God, for the ways that you empower women for the ways that your very being and essence in this world, breath, spirit, expressed femininely in all languages. It's our prayer that this morning we can remember that as we move forward, we create a world that is more open, more equal, more free, to all voices, particularly this morning, the voices of women. Amen. I wanted to share um, a very short poem from Teresa of Avila, um, who you may be familiar with. She is a was a Catholic nun in the 16th century and a mystic. Um, and in the nature and spirit of the leadership of women and the strong voices of women. I just wanted to share these words uh, that she wrote from a poem of hers. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion into the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. May it be so. Just wanted to tell you a couple things happening here at Central uh, coming up. First of all, on Friday, the 18th, so this Friday, Aaron is going to be hosting Holy Happy Hour at 8.30 at his home. Um, and so uh, I'll share the address uh, if you need it uh, online. Um, but here in Glendale, uh, let us know if you need that. We'll make sure that you have that. And uh, we're looking forward to some new things uh, coming up. Uh, including our uh, book club, which we'll set a date for, that uh, by uh, popular demand a couple weeks ago, uh, we're going to be reading uh, Jesus and John Wayne. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> looking forward to getting back into the swing of things where we actually get to see and spend time together and rebuild community. So thanks for being here and doing that um, with us. Uh, for those of you joining online, of course, as always, you are able to um, speak and interact here in the services just like we normally do. So as I uh, bring Aaron forward again for uh, leading us in prayers to people, um, your mics are live, so you can share and we will hear you. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for being here, everybody. And thanks all of you who are participating on Zoom. Um, time for prayers of the people. If you have a prayer request or perhaps a word of thanksgiving, 
just news about your life that you want to share with your church family, you're invited to come forward if you're present here. Otherwise, you can unmute uh, your Zoom channel and you can raise your voice that way, I believe. Bob is currently headed back up there to the balcony computer to manage that. But uh, yeah, anybody this morning have anything? Yeah, sure. Uh, two. Can I take this off? <laughs> two things. Um, my fiance is here, so a blessing on our relationship. This is the first time at Central. Yesenia, yeah. Uh, first time at Central, so just a prayers for our relationship. And then um, just prayers for mental health for people. I was talking to my dad. He's pretty down in the dumps because of just the way everything in the world is just, there's a lot of worry and, and, uh, it's affecting him. So just prayers for him too. Loving God, we first just want to lift up Nathan and Yesenia and the blessing of uh, this, this relationship and their, uh, their betrothal, uh, their, their engagement. We pray for just blessings on this relationship uh, and just, um, yeah, everything that's involved with, with planning a life together. We just pray a blessing over them and, and all of those pursuits and endeavors and we also just lift up Nathan's father and all those in our family and our circle of friends and family that are just feeling anxiety and stress at this time because of world events and um, issues revolving around inflation and the pandemic and war in Eastern Europe and all that goes into life in the modern world. We just pray for those in our midst that are suffering from depression and anxiety and um, all of that. We, put, we pray that the God who meets us in our brokenness, who shares in our suffering, might be with them and us. In Jesus' name, amen. Absolutely. Um, anybody else here this morning? I do want to just um, uh, lead us in a prayer uh, for what's transpiring, of course, in Ukraine. And um, some of us here, actually, even at a church this size, have connections to friends and even family um, that are currently refugees now um, or kind of captive in their own country there in Ukraine. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up our family and friends and all those actually who are um, dealing with this tragic war in Ukraine. We pray for protection on their lives we pray for an end to war, this war in particular. We pray that hearts and minds might be open to diplomatic relations, that justice might win the day, that peace and life might win the day. Our hearts break for what is transpiring on a daily basis. And we are worried and concerned about those known and unknown to us. Be with them. Jesus, who meets us in all manner of suffering, especially suffering at the hands of the state, as you yourself were crucified by the state. Be with our loved ones and our friends over there. In your name we pray. Amen. So almost every year during the season of Lent, 
as we are currently, what is this, the second Sunday of Lent now? Yeah. Almost every year during Lent, we have something here at Central called Atheism for Lent, <laughs> which is a course curated by our friend Peter Rollins. Um, we're not doing it this year because there's not a lot of interest in it. Um, last year, uh, we actually did it with our sister church up in Mission Hills, um, Mission Hills Christian Church, and it was on Zoom, of course. Um, I always try and imagine uh, what a visitor must think when they come to a church like this during Lent and we promote something called atheism for Lent. Um, you know, I would imagine they're, they're probably like, isn't that like a bookstore promoting Amazon? Isn't that inherently bad for business? Uh, but, um, and maybe it is to some degree, we're not actually promoting atheism here. Um, but for those of you who are familiar, you know, with this course and this idea, you, you get it. Um, obviously the course plays on this traditional or yeah this traditional idea of giving something up for lent right um and in this case it's it's playing on this idea of giving up god for lent but it's not even so much about giving up god or giving up faith in god for lent as if that's something one could just switch off and switch on you know like switch off for a month and then when lent is over switch back on but rather the idea of atheism for lent is about taking seriously critiques of religion from the so-called masters of suspicion, right? Like Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, and others, and allowing those critiques to inform our faith um, or purify our faith of its unhealthy aspects. And so in lieu of doing the whole atheism for Lent course here this year, since we're not doing it, I want to just take one Sunday, i.e. today, uh, and talk about this idea of atheism as as purification, which again, I, I think is one of the one of the themes of Lent, right? Traditionally, Lent is is thematically about these ideas of sober critical reflection. Right? It's about this idea of repentance. It's about this idea of of um, humility. You are dust and to dust you shall return, right? We say on Ash Wednesday. And it's about this idea of purification. And atheism actually can help with that. Uh, perhaps instead of being an enemy of religion and faith, perhaps atheism could actually be a friend or a purifier of religion and faith in the same way a forest fire can actually be beneficial for the forest, right? It burns up the diseased and dead plants. It, it replenishes the soil with nutrients like carbon and nitrogen so that the forest can come back healthier and stronger and better than before. In the same way, I think atheism or these kind of critiques of religion that we get out of atheism um, can help religion by cleansing it of its oppressive and its harmful ideas um, and thereby make religion better, make it healthier. Not all gods need to die, Catherine Saramudi says, just the murderous and oppressive ones. And atheism can help with that. Um, Say, for instance, the, the, the white nationalist god of American Christian American evangelicalism. That god, that, that's a god that needs to die. That's a god I think we should be atheists of. So, uh, so you know, same thing goes for this anti-gay god that's also so prevalent in the American church. Some gods need to die. Some gods need to be denounced. We need to be atheists about some gods. Do we not? Right? And that's part of what it means, I think practice Christianity today is we got to be clear. It's not just about what kind of God we're affirming, but what kind of God are we denying? 
to call oneself a Christian today is a dicey proposition because in most circles, when you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, people assume things about you that frankly aren't true. You know, for those of us, right? Progressive Christians, so-called. But we need to be clear. We're not just affirming gods, we're denying certain gods now, right? Um, and so in that pursuit, I wanna read a parable this morning uh, that functions as a critique of a particular kind of God. And this parable is called the parable of, of the invisible gardener. Anybody ever hear this parable before? Nathan, you have, yeah, because you've done the course before. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so it was created in the 1960s by a British philosopher called Anthony Flew. And it's one of the best critiques, uh, the best atheist critiques of religion out there. Uh, and one of the easiest to understand, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was two explorers exploring this, this jungle and they come across a clearing in the jungle and it's full of beautiful flowers. Um, weeds too, but it's just a stunning clearing, this beautiful glen. And it looks like even it's been manicured. It's just that beautiful, full of flowers. Weeds too, but full of flowers. And so one of the, one of the explorers says to the other, some gardener must tend this, this spot. It's just too beautiful to assume otherwise. And the other disagrees and says, there is no gardener. This happened naturally. So they pitch their tents there and they set a watch. No gardener is ever seen, but perhaps he's an invisible gardener, says the believer. So they set up a barbed wire fence and they electrify it. Uh, they patrol it with bloodhounds, but no shrieks ever suggest that uh, someone touched the invisible or the, the, uh, the electrified fence. And the bloodhounds never give cry. No movements of the wire ever betray uh, an invisible climber. Yet still the believer is not convinced. He exclaims, but there is a gardener, invisible, intangible, and insensible to electric shocks. A gardener who has no scent that the dogs can detect and makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last, the skeptic despairs. Um, but what, a, what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible gardener, intangible, insensible, and eternally elusive, how does that gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? That's the end of the parable. And it's meant to critique this particular argument religious folks often employ that says, you know, the universe is so complex and so beautiful and, and so ordered that, you know, there must be some kind of an intelligent designer behind it. There must be a benevolent, all-powerful creator. There must be an invisible gardener. How else can we explain what we see? And this is often called natural theology, which means, you know, arguing for the existence of a God or trying to um, deduce certain character, characteristics about God from nature, from what is natural, right? Um, and I admit, I want to be clear, I want to preface this, I admit there's some, there, there's, there's aspects of natural theology that I like. Even Anthony Flew, the author of this parable, admitted that the believer's argument in the parable is not without some merit. In fact, he once stated, Anthony Flew once stated that he agreed with Einstein and other noted scientists that the, the integrated complexity of our world and life itself can probably be best explained by uh, an intelligent source. And like Einstein, Flew was not a Christian. 
or a theist. He was a deist. Deism is this idea that there is a creator, but he's kind of like an absentee landlord. He he's got everything started. Yeah, he's responsible for the Big Bang and you know setting the the properties of the universe and creating physics. These kind the laws of nature, but he set back and allowed things or is allowing things. She set back uh, and is allowing things to naturally evolve on their own giving nature a profound amount of freedom, right? So deism is this idea that there is a God, but God doesn't intervene with his, intervene in history. This God does not suspend the laws of physics in order to do miracles. She, he, it just got, thing, got the ball rolling and is just not sure where everything's going, just letting things go as they will. That's deism, and that's an idea that's been around for a long time. Um, lots of you know, Christians, especially during the Enlightenment, uh, some of the founding fathers, so-called founding fathers of this nation, like Thomas Jefferson, were subscribers to that view. And, and Anthony Flew's of that persuasion. He's a deist. And Einstein was arguably a deist. Um, and deism is different than theism, because theism is about this idea of a personal and all-powerful God that you know, answers prayers and works miracles and intervenes in history. So there are aspects of the believer's argument in the parable that work for deism, but the parable still functions as a good critique of a lot of theistic claims and, and natural theology, because once you go down the road of natural theology, you kind of got to go all the way. And that can be problematic, because in other words, if the order, complexity, and beauty of the universe is evidence of a benevolent, all-powerful creator, then what about the chaos and the violence and the self-destructive tendencies of the universe, entropy, and these kinds of things? You can't have it one way and not the other. Either the natural world is evidence of you know, a benevolent, all-powerful creator, or, or it's not, and you kind of have to take the good with the bad. You know? Otherwise, you're just cherry-picking, as they say, right? confirmation bias taking the evidence that supports your presuppositions and what you like and ignoring all the rest. So that so, so the parable is really about how certain understandings of God die from a thousand qualifications. That's really what it's about. For example, believers often say when horrible injustices occur, like, like the death of a child, you'll hear folks say, well, this is just a mystery of, of God's goodwill. Right? God is still an all-loving and all-powerful all, pow an all God. We just can't understand his ways. But this is part of his will. Must be. And this argument gets applied to a lot of life's dilemmas. God is always let off the hook by an endless parade of ad hoc justifications, and it raises the question, what would it take for a reasonable thinking person to not believe in an all-powerful God, seeing how, how little... God does to alleviate human suffering. What's the difference between such a mysterious God existing and there not being any such God at all? You know, this is the parable again, right? This is what the parable is getting at. And this critique is actually quite purifying for religion, I'm arguing today. This is good for us. It purifies it, purifies religion from this problematic conception of God and the harmful cliches that always follow, like, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle. Have you heard that one before? God is always in control, even when it looks like he's not. He's really in control. Saying that in a hospital setting to a family that just lost their child. Um, there's a saying, any, any theology that can't be preached 
before the gates of Auschwitz should not be preached anywhere at any time because we are always in the midst of unspeakable suffering. You never know what the person next to you is going through. So these, uh, these cliches, God never gives us more than we can handle. God is always in control. Everything must serve some good divine ultimate purpose. You know, if we can't understand it now, one day we will, you know. Um, this is problematic stuff. It's hurtful. Um, a lot of damage gets done with such theology, I'd argue. A lot of damage. And this intersects with prayer, too. If, if one believes in an all-powerful God that won't act in the world unless we pray, or unless we pray in the right way, or unless, you know, we pray with enough faith, enough certainty, right? If, if um, you know, such an understanding of prayer turns God kind of into Al Capone. God is essentially a gangster holding a gun to our head or to the head of a loved one, and he's going to pull the trigger unless we ask him not to or ask him in just the right way with the right amount of faith. Again, atheist critiques of such a God can be quite cleansing and helpful for religion. These critiques, as, as scary as they are at first, they are scary. These critiques are actually good for religion and good for us. In general, I think a lot of religion's problems, this is kind of the bottom line, I think a lot of religion's problems go away or are greatly diminished if we set aside this idea of an all-powerful deity. It really solves a lot of problems. It opens up new ideas of God that I think are healthier and comport more with our lived reality and, from a Christian perspective, jive more with the cross. This idea of a crucified God, this idea of a God who cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this despairing God who, who shares in our suffering, the God of the Garden of Gethsemane, begged his friends to stay awake with him in his hour of need as he sweated drops of blood. God is summoning humanity to share. He's summoning us to share in his sufferings at the hands of a godless world. This is the God found in Christianity. Eh? is antithetical in a lot of ways to this idea of an all-powerful supreme being. So I, I think, and I advocate for a God more like that. Again, I think that's healthier. I think that solves a lot of problems theologically, philosophically that we were raised on. Um, and again, it opens up new ideas of God that are healthier and comport more with our lived reality. And the mystics, the church mystics spoke of such a God. Bob earlier read from Teresa of Avila, um, who's, again, a medieval church mystic, who said um, that God's body and my body are the same. God has no body in this world other than our body. The, the mystics were constantly saying things like this, which frankly sound a little atheistic. <laughs> but they weren't atheists. They were just affirming a different kind of God. And rather than a a transcendent God beyond an imminent God here and now in flesh, incarnated in the flesh, in us. A Holy Spirit, if you will, that fills us, empowers us to live out of Christ's virtues of love and justice. You know, the mystic spoke of God not so much as an all-powerful being on high, but they also spoke of, of this God as not so much a being at all sometimes. They spoke of 
They spoke of God as the source of all things and to which all things one day must return. God isn't a being so much for the mystics, but the being of beings, if you will. Vocabulary fails us in this regard. God is the spirit or the energy or the source which undergirds all reality. That The mystics also spoke of God as, as being somehow inseparable from us, like Teresa of Avila did. God became man so that man might become God, Athanasius said in the fourth century. God became man so that man might become God. That sounds like something some heretical progressive Christian might say today. That's 1800 years, well, let's see, fourth century, yeah, approximately 1700 years old. That idea has been in the church for a long time. Or consider Meister Eckhart's words from the fourth century, 14th century, excuse me. The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one sight and one knowledge and one love. The church mystic spoke of love itself as God. Marguerite Perrette, also from the 14th century, she said, God is love and love is God. Hear how quickly that passage out of 1 John 4 slides from God is love to, well, love is God. A equals B, B must equal A. <laughs> You know, but that's a radical thing to say, to say that love is God. Sounds a little atheistic, maybe. In other words, it's not so much about this transcendent, all-powerful being on high, but about a lived reality here and now, in this life, this world, in us, in each other. But again, to be clear, these were all Christian conceptions of God in the Middle Ages. This is a new and they, these ideas were, of course, deemed heresy by the so-called long robes, <laughs> you know, the priests and the clergy and the bishops, because frankly, these ideas sound a little too close to atheism. When God and humanity become indistinguishable, or God and love become indistinguishable, you're never far from saying there's no transcendent being on high. There is only a kind of sacred and divine depth dimension to this life and this world. All of God is emptied out of heaven and is found in the loving embrace of this life and each other. And that's Christ. I mean, that's kind of walks a fine line, right? Between what, the, what, what we would describe as atheism and theism. And that idea, again, was those ideas were deemed heresy in the church, especially, you know, by those who make their living from teaching people to fear and worship this, this being on high, who, of course, has appointed them as his representatives on earth, right? And you know, he, he said, you have to listen to me and attend here and give me money. <laughs> yeah, quickly, that, it's obvious how that works, right? But the mystics were always skeptical of that and quick to disagree with such conceptions of God. They saw through it. They were kind of the original masters of suspicion, these medieval church mystics. They were the masters of suspicion long before Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud ever came along. In fact, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud credited a lot of the medieval church mystics, like Meister Eckhart and others, as deeply influential on their own atheism. There has always been a close relationship between mysticism and atheism. Mysticism is really where atheism and theism 
get blurred. I'm reminded of Richard Dawkins' famous book, The God Delusion, came out years ago. It's a New York Times bestseller. Dawkins, of course, is perhaps one of the most prominent and outspoken atheists out there. But he actually spends a good portion of this book, The God Delusion, saying that he is not attacking what he calls Einstein's God, meaning this mystical and deistic understanding of God that Einstein and other scientists entertained, like Anthony Flood did. You know, Einstein's God, according to Dawkins, is you know, quite different than the God of fundamentalism. So Dawkins is quite clear. I am not denouncing all conceptions of God, like Einstein's God, that mystical kind of understanding. I'm attacking fundamentalism and its horrendous ideas of God. And rightfully so, in my opinion, he attacks that. And it gets all the bad press it gets. I think it deserves all the bad press it gets. As Caputo likes to say, you get the atheism you deserve. <laughs> I love that saying. You get the atheism you deserve. Meaning if one professes belief in a God that could, if he really wanted to, or if we just, if enough of us just prayed hard enough, you know, such a God could empty out all the pediatric oncology wards in every hospital in the world, essentially eliminating childhood cancer, but you know, he won't for some mysterious reason. Um, if one believes in such a God, one should not be surprised when others find such a God impossible to believe in. They respond with incredulity, we would say, about such a God, and rightfully so. You get the atheism you deserve. Such ideas of God deserve to be criticized, and believers should welcome such purifying criticisms from atheism. Likewise, if the church preaches a God of hellfire and brimstone, this God who banishes people to eternal torment for having the wrong beliefs, being part of the wrong religion, being gay or whatever, don't be surprised when people find that God impossible to believe in. On both rational and moral grounds, such a God is both rationally and, and morally repugnant. We should all want religion to be purified of such gods. Do we not want religion to be purified of such gods? I do. So those are some of the examples of the way that atheism can be purifying for religion. There's more to it than that, but you know, that's, that's enough for today. And we can, we can talk about it in a few minutes, but now we're going to enter into um, this holy time, the sacred time of the Lord's Supper. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, let's meditate on this, uh, on the symbolism of what we're doing. Here is the body and blood of Jesus, according to church tradition. Here is the body and blood of Jesus. Essentially the corpse of God. And we Christians consume the dead body of God, so to speak, as a way of saying that God now lives in us. God is raised in us as a Holy Spirit. And as the fourth century Christian theologian Athanasius put it, again, God became man so that man might become God. Partaking in the Lord's Supper is a way of saying this. It's a way of saying this simultaneous affirmation and negation of God. It's to say, in some ways, God is dead and long live God. God is dead, long live God. Perhaps Christianity is about a kind of, perhaps Christianity is, is as much about a kind of atheism as it is about a kind of theism. 
The God of religious law is dead, and a God of pure love is resurrected. The all-powerful supreme being on high is dead, and a God who inhabits this broken and imperfect world and us lives. This Holy Spirit lives now in us as we give ourselves over to Christ's virtues of love and justice and care for each other. And so let's meditate now on the life of God in us as we receive Holy Communion. The way we do that here on Sunday mornings right now is you come forward, you take a, one of these cups of, of just grape juice and one of these gluten-free crackers and return to your seat. And as Max leads us in song, you take, um, take that uh, when you're ready. Let's partake in the Lord's Supper now. it down slowly discover our hearts are dumb there's nothing that holy in loving like drunk kids love and I've forgotten where I was I see you in spotlights In visions I'm saving now Before we are parted By rivers of words Somehow I'm still besotted But sobered up So let's drink Drink the best wine now While we're strong and we are proud Until lightning strikes us down And you'll eat, eat till you are full Cutting straight through all the bowl I will accept you warts and all It's weird and unnerving Forsaking my own life now Cause this is a burden I can't seem to do without When time is rotten We soldier on I wanna be near I want to be close behind A little bit clearer A little bit hard to find And I've forgotten Who I was So let's drink Drink the best wine now we are strong and we are proud 
Until lightning strikes us down And you'll speak Speak till you are whole What is clear is what is gold You're only human after all comments uh, about this concept of atheism as purification today. Um, yeah, any of you online, you can always raise your voice that way too by unmuting and <clears throat> maybe we can hear from you. Yeah, Jen, and I'm going to give you the mic so that um, people online can hear you. Where'd the other one go? Oh, there it is. All right, I think they both work. So I'm in a book club right now and we're reading a book called God is a Black Woman. Cool. And I've only like read the first two chapters, but it's kind of in this vein of like rejecting white male God yeah, and kind of having to unlearn everything that he has become in our lives. Mm -hmm. So and discovering a God that you don't have to perform for and that you don't have to be perfect for. And it really truly does meet you where you are. Yeah. Cause this, the concept of white male God does not. Right. So I think that was just very much in line with that, you know, purifying yourself of this yeah. toxic concept. That's so. really interesting. Uh, that's thank you for sharing that. That's that's beautiful. What's the name of the book, by the way? Uh, it's God is a Black Woman. God, that's the actual yeah. name. God is a Black Woman. That's perfect. I think I've actually heard of that, um, Max. You have, yeah. I look to you because I feel like you're up on these things better than most. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds great, right? And um, I'm so glad you resonate with that idea that this that the, the, there is a kind of atheism that's actually closer to. <laughs> You know, this this kind of Christian theism that I hope that we aspire to, so to speak. Yeah. Then other kinds of, you know, 
theism, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's really good, Jen. Thank you. Um, somebody else today, questions, comments, maybe about this intersection between atheism and theism. Anything? Yeah, Nathan. There you are. So I was reading an essay from Father Richard Rohr this past Yes, always week. good stuff from him. Yeah, and it was about eminence and transcendence. Yeah. And, um, and I found it really helpful because he was describing that we've always had this pressure throughout history to choose between transcendence and eminence. It's a choice. And in the West, the binary, you it's have the to binary. Do. And then and when, when we say transcendence, the God that's up there, that's out there, you can't completely know. And eminence is the God that's here among us, you know, it's with the natural theology. And in the West, when we have to choose and that we get in that tension, we always go to transcendence. We default to it's a transcendent God. And then maybe in the East, they, they default to imminence. God is here and it's among us. But what he, this essay was about is talking about the Trinity, which is so confusing. You know, like we've struggled for so long to understand what a triune God looks like. And the early church fathers in the first couple centuries fought over this and the church split over it throughout history. But what he was suggesting is that you don't really, the triune God, the Trinity is a God that is both transcendent and imminent at the exact same time. You have the father image, the father God image. And I know that can be triggering for some, but like there's God, the father, but then the Christ and the Holy Spirit are, that seems transcendent. And then this Christ and the Holy Spirit are more imminent. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, then it's like, oh, the Trinity starts to make a little bit more sense from a philosophical way. Yeah. If you don't have to choose, but we've been choosing so long of like praying to a God that's up there, but struggling to feel God in our heart or feeling God in our heart, but not understanding what it means to have a God that's out there. Um, but you don't have to choose. It's yeah. both like that. God is God. And it's just a wonderful thought, I think, because it's so big and, and can be so powerful. Yeah. So personal and yet awe-inspiring at the same time. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, man, for sharing it. Yeah, Steve, would you grab that? Actually, just hold on to it for me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really good, Nathan. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, in a sense, you know, letting go of, you know, thinking in dualities is a big part, I think, of growing spiritually, learning to think more holistically about some of these complex ideas like transcendence and imminence. I think has a lot to do with, again, growing spiritually and letting letting go of the need to separate everything into neat categories. And, you know, that's kind of a conservative approach <laughs> to a lot of things, but specifically religion, right? This need to control and to create, you know, put everything in rigid categories. You know. That's really good. Thank you. Um, other thoughts today um, about any of this? want to close us with a benediction that's um, better than the computer telling us recording has stopped. <laughs> uh, this benediction is from the Irish poet, Patrick o o uh, Otama. Am I pronouncing that right, Steve? Patrick, you're nodding yes, because you, what's that? Otuma, thank you. I think that's better, yeah. Uh, this benediction is called Go in Pieces. And of course, it's a play on that classic benediction that I say, go in peace, right? But this is go in pieces. And it's a perfect benediction for today. Here it is. The task has ended. Go in pieces. Our faith has been rear-ended, certainty amended, 
and something might be mended that we didn't know was torn. And we are fire, bright, burning fire, turning from the higher places from which we fell, emptying ourselves into the hell in which we'll find our loving and beloved brother, mother, sister, father, and friend. And so, friends, the task has ended. Go in pieces to see and feel your world. Thanks for being here today, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Now we can all kind of hang out and chat. <laughs> Bob has done a ton of work, just so everybody knows. Bob is working his butt off to make sure all the audio levels are on both in person and on the computer. It's actually a lot harder than it seems. So thank you, Bob. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get started as we often do by just taking um, a moment um, just, just um, focusing on our, on our breath, focusing on our, our bodies here in this place, uh, as we often talk about um, the world that we inhabit um, is a wild place. Uh, it's, it's, it always has been. And I think uh, all of us have our own list of things right now that um, could cause stress or anxiety or despair or grief uh, at any, any moment of the day that we chose to think about it. Um, and, and on one hand, that's what it means to exist uh, in this world. Um, and on the other, it's also a reminder of us, for us to uh, find ourselves where we are, to enjoy it to the best of our abilities and to do the work that we can. <clears throat> so with that in mind, would you join me uh, as we get started this morning, just in a, in a centering prayer. God of peace, we come to you today as people who seek um, something. God, we seek justice, we seek peace, the end um, of fighting. We seek the end of oppression. We seek love in this world, God, when it feels like everywhere we turn, we see hate. God, allow us to look inwards to ourselves um, and come to terms with everything we are, God. The ups, the downs, the joys, the sorrows. May we recognize, God, that in that humanness, we are everything we need. That we have the ability to seek love, to bring peace and grace to work for justice. God, though, though it is anything but easy, um, may you remind us of this calling, may you remind us of our own power, of our own ability to be a people of change, of healing, of transformation. So may you make us into those people each day. May we be brave enough to make those choices every day. Amen.
this I can't take no more Cars erased by burning headlights in the mirror I watch myself simple song so I can sing along cherry blossoms in spring they mean everything soul I'm making to go along and for a love I've never known My own life has taken its toll Drunk on whiskey God don't let me go A simple song so I can sing along cherry blossoms in spring and all the joy that it brings cause I've been out on the road driving with no place to go from Cheyenne out to Frisco I'm dying to find me a home Take me 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 home
of the living black bleeds orange into blue I am coming to life Light is breaking through I can hear the bells in the city Across the ancient shore I am ready to fight Let down the scarlet cord Time to shed this masquerade. You cannot love in moderation. You're dancing with a dead man's bones. Live. Between the walls of the river, shoulders bear the sacred stones. We made it alive. We the ground and change your name you cannot love in moderation you're dancing with a dead man's bones let your Threshing Distant battle drums, mocking birds, spoken tongues, longing for the day to come. I set my face, forsook my fears, saw the city through my tears. The darkness will soon disappear and be swallowed by the sun. Well, I
Hey guys, good morning. Welcome again to Central Avenue Church. Really good to see you again in person. Um, and of course, we're celebrating women's history this month, um, something that has been important to us for the long history here at Central. Uh, but we recognize and acknowledge this moment that we set aside. And just as we talked about for Black History Month last week, we have these things and these reminders because we still aren't a part of a culture and a society where these things are self-evident and taken to be just a part of reality. So we acknowledge and set these times, even though we value Black voices and women's voices always, um, we especially want to make sure that during this week we lift those up. And you hear me talk about this from time to time too, that we know we are a church that is staffed largely by uh, white males and that our ethos and the things that we talk and care about here are very much wider and more diverse than that. Um, but we're a small church and this is where we are at this moment at least. Um, so it's important for us to do those things and recognize that and talk about that regularly so that we can better exemplify who we talk about, who we claim to be, and who we hope the church can be um, always moving forward. This morning, I wanted to share with you a piece of liturgy that is a prayer um, that was written by Diane New. Um, she is the co-founder and co-director of WATER, which is the Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics, and Ritual. Um, and it's very short but it's about the acknowledgement of um, women uh, all across the world on all seven continents. So let's join together in prayer. Praise to you, women leaders of the seven continents for your many works of justice. Praise to you, women leaders of Asia for confronting trafficking of women. Praise to you, women leaders of Africa for raising your voices to stop AIDS. Praise to you, women leaders of Europe, for your peacekeeping. Praise to you, women leaders of North America, for confronting economic inequality and racism. Praise to you, women leaders of South America, for struggling against U.S. domination of your land. Praise to you, women leaders of Antarctica, for your scientific research. Praise to you, women leaders of Australia, for supporting indigenous cultures. We lift up the many works that women contribute to here this morning. God, for the ways that you empower women for the ways that your very being and essence in this world, breath, spirit, expressed femininely in all languages. It's our prayer that this morning we can remember that as we move forward, we create a world that is more open, more equal, more free, to all voices, particularly this morning, the voices of women. Amen. I wanted to share um, a very short poem from Teresa of Avila. 
um, who you may be familiar with. She is a, was a Catholic nun in the 16th century and a mystic. Um, and in the nature and spirit of the leadership of women and the strong voices of women, I just wanted to share these words uh, that she wrote from a poem of hers. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion into the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. May it be so. Just wanted to tell you a couple things happening here at Central uh, coming up. First of all, on Friday, the 18th, so this Friday, Aaron is going to be hosting Holy Happy Hour at 8.30 at his home. Um, and so I'll share the address uh, if you need it uh, online. Um, but here in Glendale, uh, let us know if you need that. We'll make sure that you have that. And uh, we're looking forward to some new things uh, coming up. Uh, including our uh, book club, which we'll set a date for, that uh, by uh, popular demand a couple weeks ago, uh, we're going to be reading uh, Jesus and John Wayne. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> looking forward to getting back into the swing of things where we actually get to see and spend time together and rebuild community. So thanks for being here and doing that um, with us. Uh, for those of you joining online, of course, as always, you are able to um, speak and interact here in the services just like we normally do. So as I uh, bring Aaron forward again for uh, leading us in prayers to people, um, your mics are live, so you can share and we will hear you. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for being here, everybody. And thanks all of you who are participating on Zoom. Um, time for prayers of the people. If you have a prayer request or perhaps a word of thanksgiving, just news about your life that you want to share with your church family, you're invited to come forward if you're present here. Otherwise, you can unmute uh, your Zoom channel and you can raise your voice that way, I believe. Bob is currently headed back up there to the balcony computer to manage that. But uh, yeah, anybody this morning have anything? Yeah, sure. Uh, two. Can I take this off? <laughs> two things. Um, my fiance is here, so a blessing on our relationship. This is the first time at Central. Yesenia, yeah. yeah. Uh, first time at Central, so just a prayers for our relationship. And then um, just prayers for mental health for people. I was talking to my dad. He's pretty down in the dumps because it's just the way everything in the world it's just there's a lot of worry and and uh it's affecting him so just prayers for him too loving god we first just want to lift up nathan and yesenia and the blessing of uh this this relationship and their uh their betrothal uh, their their engagement we pray for just blessings on this relationship uh, and just um yeah everything that's involved with with planning a life together, we just pray a blessing over them and, and all of those pursuits and endeavors. And we also just lift up Nathan's father and all those in our family and our circle of, of friends and family that are just feeling anxiety and stress at this time because of world events and um, issues revolving around inflation and pandemic and war in Eastern Europe and 
all that goes into life in the modern world. We just pray for those in our midst that are suffering from depression and anxiety and um, all of that. We, put, we pray that the God who meets us in our brokenness, who shares in our suffering, might be with them and us. In Jesus' name, amen. Absolutely. Um, anybody else here this morning? I do want to just um, uh, lead us in a prayer uh, for what's transpiring, of course, in Ukraine. And um, some of us here, actually, even at a church this size, have connections to friends and even family um, that are currently refugees now um, or kind of captive in their own country there in Ukraine. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up our family and friends and all those actually who are um, dealing with this tragic war in Ukraine. We pray for protection on their lives. We pray for an end to war, this war in particular. We pray that hearts and minds might be open to diplomatic relations, that justice might win the day, that peace and life might win the day. Our hearts break for what is transpiring on a daily basis. And we are worried and concerned about those known and unknown to us. Be with them, Jesus, who meets us in all manner of suffering, especially suffering at the hands of the state as you yourself were crucified by the state. Be with our loved ones and our friends over there. In your name we pray. Amen. So almost every year during the season of Lent, as we are currently, what is this, the second Sunday of Lent now? Yeah. Almost every year during Lent, we have something here at Central called Atheism for Lent, which is a course curated by our friend Peter Rollins. Um, we're not doing it this year because there's not a lot of interest in it. Um, last year, uh, we actually did it with our sister church up in Mission Hills, um, Mission Hills Christian Church, and it was on Zoom, of course. Um, I always try and imagine uh, what a visitor must think when they come to a church like this during Lent and we promote something called atheism for Lent. Um, you know, I would imagine they're, they're probably like, isn't that like a bookstore promoting Amazon? Isn't that inherently bad for business? Uh, but um, and maybe it is to some degree. We're not actually promoting atheism here. Um, but for those of you who are familiar you know, with this course and this idea, you, you get it. Um, obviously, the course plays on this traditional or, yeah, this traditional idea of giving something up for Lent, right? Um, and in this case, it's, it's playing on this idea of giving up God for Lent. But it's not even so much about giving up God or giving up faith in God for Lent, as if that's something one could just switch off and switch on, you know, like switch off for a month, and then when Lent is over, switch back on. But rather, the idea of atheism for Lent is about taking seriously critiques of religion from the so-called masters of suspicion, right? Like Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, and others, and allowing those critiques to inform our faith um, or purify our faith of its unhealthy aspects. And so 
In lieu of doing the whole atheism for Lent course here this year, since we're not doing it, I want to just take one Sunday, i.e. today, uh, and talk about this idea of atheism as, as purification. Which again, I, I think is one of the one of the themes of Lent, right? Traditionally, Lent is is thematically about these ideas of sober critical reflection. Right? It's about this idea of repentance. It's about this idea of of um, humility. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? We say on Ash Wednesday, and it's about this idea of purification, and atheism actually can help with that. Uh, perhaps instead of being an enemy of religion and faith, perhaps atheism could actually be a friend or a purifier of religion and faith in the same way a forest fire can actually be beneficial for the forest, right? It burns up the diseased and dead plants. It, it replenishes the soil with nutrients like carbon and nitrogen so that the forest can come back healthier and stronger and better than before. In the same way, I think atheism or these kind of critiques of religion that we get out of atheism um, can help religion by cleansing it of its oppressive and its harmful ideas um, and thereby make religion better, make it healthier. Not all gods need to die, Catherine Sarah Moody says, just the murderous and oppressive ones. And atheism can help with that. Um, Say, for instance, the, the, the white nationalist God of American Christian, American evangelicalism. That God, that, that's a God that needs to die. That's a God I think we should be atheists of. So, you know, same thing goes for this anti-gay God that's also so prevalent in the American church. Some gods need to die. Some gods need to be denounced. We need to be atheists about some gods. Do we not? Right? And that's part of what it means, I think to practice Christianity today is we got to be clear. It's not just about what kind of God we're affirming, but what kind of God are we denying? To call oneself a Christian today is a dicey proposition because in most circles, when you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, people assume things about you that frankly aren't true. You know, for those of us, right? Progressive Christians, so-called. But we need to be clear. We're not just affirming gods. We're denying certain gods now, right? Um, and so in that pursuit, I want to read a parable this morning uh, that functions as a critique of a particular kind of God. And this parable is called the parable of, of the invisible gardener. Anybody ever hear this parable before? Nathan, you have? Yeah, because you've done the course before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it was created in the 1960s by a British philosopher called Anthony Flew. And it's one of the best critiques uh, the best atheist critiques of religion out there, uh, and one of the easiest to understand, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was two explorers exploring this, this jungle, and they come across a clearing in the jungle, and it's full of beautiful flowers. Um, weeds too, but it's just a stunning clearing, this beautiful glen, and it looks like even it's been manicured. It's just that beautiful, full of flowers. Weeds too, but full of flowers. And so one of, the, one of the explorers says to the other, some gardener must tend this, this spot. It's just too beautiful to assume otherwise. And the other disagrees and says, there is no gardener. This happened naturally. So they pitch their tents there and they set a watch. No gardener is ever seen, but perhaps he's an invisible gardener, says the believer. So they set up a barbed wire fence and they electrify it. 
they patrol it with bloodhounds, but no shrieks ever suggest that uh, someone touched the invisible or the, the, uh, the electrified fence and the bloodhounds never give cry. No movements of the wire ever betray uh, an invisible climber. Yet still the believer is not convinced. He exclaims, but there is a gardener, invisible, intangible, and insensible to electric shocks. A gardener who has no scent that the dogs can detect and makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last, the skeptic despairs. Um, but what, a, what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible gardener, intangible and sensible and eternally elusive, how does that gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? That's the end of the parable. And it's meant to critique this particular argument religious folks often employ that says, you know, the universe is so complex and so beautiful and, and so ordered that, you know, there must be some kind of an intelligent designer behind it. There must be a benevolent, all-powerful creator. There must be an invisible gardener. How else can we explain what we see? And this is often called natural theology, which means, you know, arguing for the existence of a God or trying to um, deduce certain character characteristics about God from nature, from what is natural, right? Um, and I admit, I want to be clear, I want to preface this, I admit there's some there's, there's aspects of natural theology that I like. Even Anthony Flew, the author of this parable, admitted that the believer's argument in the parable is not without some merit. In fact, he once stated, Anthony Flew once stated, that he agreed with Einstein and other noted scientists that the, the integrated complexity of our world and life itself can probably be best explained by uh, an intelligent source. And like Einstein, Flew was not a Christian or a theist. He was a deist. Deism is this idea that there is a creator, but he's kind of like an absentee landlord. He, he got everything started. Yeah, he's responsible for the Big Bang and you know, setting the, the properties of the universe and creating physics, these kinds of laws of nature. But he set back and allowed things or is allowing things, she set back uh, and allowing things to naturally evolve on their own, giving nature a profound amount of freedom, right? So deism is this idea that there is a God, but God doesn't intervene with his, intervene in history. This God does not suspend the laws of physics in order to do miracles. She, he, it just got, thing, got the ball rolling and is just not sure where everything's going, just letting things go as they will. That's deism, and that's an idea that's been around for a long time. Um, lots of you know, Christians, especially during the Enlightenment, uh, some of the founding fathers, so-called founding fathers of this nation, like Thomas Jefferson, were subscribers to that view. And, and Anthony Flew's of that persuasion. He's a deist. And Einstein was arguably a deist. Um, and deism is different than theism, because theism is about this idea of a personal and all-powerful God that you know, answers prayers and works miracles and intervenes in history. So there are aspects of the believer's argument in the parable that work for deism, but the parable still functions as a good critique of a lot of theistic claims and, and natural theology, because once you go down the road of natural theology, you kind of got to go all the way. And that 
can be problematic because in other words, if the order, complexity and beauty of the universe is evidence of a benevolent, all powerful creator, then what about the chaos and the violence and the self-destructive tendencies of the universe, entropy and these kinds of things. You can't have it one way and not the other. Either the natural world is evidence of you know, a benevolent, all powerful creator or, or it's not. And you kind of have to take the good with the bad. You know, otherwise you're just cherry picking, as they say, right? Confirmation bias, taking the evidence that supports your presuppositions and what you like and ignoring all the rest. So that, so, so the parable is really about how certain understandings of God die from a thousand qualifications. That's really what it's about. For example, believers often say when horrible injustices occur, like, like the death of a child, you'll hear folks say, well, this is just a mystery of, of God's goodwill, right? God is still an all-loving and all-powerful God. We just can't understand his ways. But this is part of his will, must be. And this argument gets applied to a lot of life's dilemmas. God is always let off the hook by an endless parade of ad hoc justifications, and it raises the question, what would it take for a reasonable thinking person to not believe in an all-powerful God, seeing how, how little you know, God does to alleviate human suffering, what's the difference between such a mysterious God existing and there not being any such God at all? You know, this is the parable again, right? This is what the parable is getting at. And this critique is actually quite purifying for religion, I'm arguing today. This is good for us. It purifies it purifies religion from this problematic conception of God and the harmful cliches that always follow, like, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle. Have you heard that one before? God is always in control, even when it looks like he's not. He's really in control. Saying that in a hospital setting to a family that just lost their child. Um, there's a saying, any, any theology that can't be preached before the gates of Auschwitz should not be preached anywhere at any time because we are always in the midst of unspeakable suffering. You never know what the person next to you is going through. So these, uh, these cliches, God never gives us more than we can handle. God is always in control. Everything must serve some good divine ultimate purpose. You know, if we can't understand it now, one day we will, you know. Um, this is problematic stuff. It's hurtful. Um, a lot of damage gets done with such theology, I'd argue. A lot of damage. And this intersects with prayer, too. If, if one believes in an all-powerful God that won't act in the world unless we pray, or unless we pray in the right way, or unless, you know, we pray with enough faith, enough certainty, right? If, if um, you know, such an understanding of prayer turns God kind of into Al Capone. God is essentially a gangster holding a gun to our head or to the head of a loved one, and he's going to pull the trigger unless we ask him not to or ask him in just the right way with the right amount of faith. Again, atheist critiques of such a God can be quite cleansing and helpful for religion. These critiques, as, as scary as they are at first, they are scary. These critiques are actually good for religion and good for us. In general, I think a lot of religion's problems, this is kind of the bottom line, I think a lot of religion's problems go away or are greatly diminished if we set aside this idea of an all-powerful deity, 
It really solves a lot of problems. It opens up new ideas of God that I think are healthier and comport more with our lived reality. And from a Christian perspective, jive more with the cross. This idea of a crucified God, this idea of a God who cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this despairing God who, who shares in our suffering, the God of the Garden of Gethsemane, begged his friends to stay awake with him in his hour of need as he sweated drops of blood. God is summoning humanity to share. He's summoning us to share in his sufferings at the hands of a godless world. This is the God found in Christianity. That is antithetical in a lot of ways to this idea of an all-powerful supreme being. So I, I think, and I advocate for a God more like that. Again, I think that's healthier. I think that solves a lot of problems theologically, philosophically that we were raised on. Um, and again, it opens up new ideas of God that are healthier and comport more with our lived reality. And the mystics, the church mystics spoke of such a God. Bob earlier read from Teresa of Avila, um, who's again, a medieval church mystic, who said um, that God's body and my body are the same. God has no body in this world other than our body. The, the mystics were constantly saying things like this, which frankly sound a little atheistic, <laughs> but they weren't atheists. They were just affirming a different kind of God. And rather than a, a transcendent God beyond an imminent God here and now in flesh, incarnated in the flesh, in us, a Holy Spirit, if you will, that fills us, empowers us to live out of Christ's virtues of love and justice. You know, the mystic spoke of God not so much as an all-powerful being on high, but they also spoke of, of this God as not so much a being at all sometimes. They spoke of they spoke of God as the source of all things and to which all things one day must return. God isn't a being so much for the mystics, but the being of beings, if you will. Well, vocabulary fails us in this regard. God is the spirit or the energy or the source which undergirds all reality. That The mystics also spoke of God as, as being somehow inseparable from us, like Teresa of Avila did. God became man so that man might become God, Athanasius said in the fourth century. God became man so that man might become God. That sounds like something some heretical progressive Christian might say today. That's 1800 years, well, let's see, fourth century, yeah, approximately 1700 years old. That idea has been in the church for a long time. Or consider Meister Eckhart's words from the fourth century, 14th century, excuse me. The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one sight and one knowledge and one love. The church mystic spoke of love itself as God. Marguerite Perret, also from the 14th century, she said, God is love and love is God. Hear how quickly that passage out of 1 John 4 slides from God is love to, well, love is God. A equals B, B must equal A. <laughs> You know, but that's a radical thing to say, to say that love is God. Sounds a little 
atheistic maybe. In other words, it's not so much about this transcendent, all-powerful being on high, but about a lived reality here and now, in this life, this world, in us, in each other. But again, to be clear, these were all Christian conceptions of God in the Middle Ages. This is a new. And they, these ideas were, of course, deemed heresy by the so-called long robes, <laughs> you know, the priests and the clergy and the bishops. Because frankly, these ideas sound a little too close to atheism. When God and humanity become indistinguishable, or God and love become indistinguishable, you're never far from saying there's no transcendent being on high. There is only a kind of sacred and divine depth dimension to this life and this world. All of God is emptied out of heaven and is found in the loving embrace of this life and each other. And that's Christ. I mean, that's kind of walks a fine line, right? Between what the, what, what we would describe as atheism and theism. And that idea, again, was those ideas were deemed heresy in the church, especially, you know, by those who make their living from teaching people to fear and worship this, this being on high, who, of course, has appointed them as his representatives on earth, right? And you know, he, he said, you have to listen to me and attend here and give me money. <laughs> yeah, quickly, that, it's obvious how that works, right? But the mystics were always skeptical of that and quick to disagree with such conceptions of God. They saw through it. They were kind of the original masters of suspicion, these medieval church mystics. They were the masters of suspicion long before Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud ever came along. In fact, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud credited a lot of the medieval church mystics, like Meister Eckhart and others, as deeply influential on their own atheism. There has always been a close relationship between mysticism and atheism. Mysticism is really where atheism and theism get blurred. I'm reminded of Richard Dawkins' famous book, The God Delusion. came out years ago. It's a New York Times bestseller. Dawkins, of course, is perhaps one of the most prominent and outspoken atheists out there. But he actually spends a good portion of this book, The God Delusion, saying that he is not attacking what he calls Einstein's God meaning this mystical and deistic understanding of God that Einstein and other scientists entertained, like Anthony Flew did. You know, Einstein's God, according to Dawkins, is you know, quite different than the God of fundamentalism. So Dawkins is quite clear. I am not denouncing all conceptions of God, like Einstein's God, that mystical kind of understanding. I'm attacking fundamentalism and its horrendous ideas of God, and rightfully so, in my opinion. He attacks that. And it gets all the bad press it gets. I think it deserves all the bad press it gets. As Caputo likes to say, you get the atheism you deserve. <laughs> I love that saying. You get the atheism you deserve. Meaning if one professes belief in a God that could, if he really wanted to, or if we just, if enough of us just prayed hard enough, you know, such a God could empty out all the pediatric oncology wards in every hospital in the world, essentially eliminating childhood cancer, but, you know, he won't for some mysterious reason. Um, if one believes in such a God, one should not be surprised when others find such a God impossible to believe in. 
They respond with incredulity, we would say, about such a God, and rightfully so. You get the atheism you deserve. Such ideas of God deserve to be criticized, and believers should welcome such purifying criticisms from atheism. Likewise, if the church preaches a God of hellfire and brimstone, this God who banishes people to eternal torment for having the wrong beliefs, being part of the wrong religion, being gay or whatever, don't be surprised when people find that God impossible to believe in. On both rational and moral grounds, such a God is both rationally and, and morally repugnant. We should all want religion to be purified of such gods. Do we not want religion to be purified of such gods? I do. So those are some of the examples of the way that atheism can be purifying for religion. There's more to it than that, but you know, that's, that's enough for today. And we can, we can talk about it in a few minutes, but now we're going to enter into um, this holy time, the sacred time of the Lord's Supper. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, let's meditate on this, uh, on the symbolism of what we're doing. Here is the body and blood of Jesus, according to church tradition. Here is the body and blood of Jesus. Essentially the corpse of God. And we Christians consume the dead body of God, so to speak, as a way of saying that God now lives in us. God is raised in us as a Holy Spirit. And as the fourth century Christian theologian Athanasius put it, again, God became man so that man might become God. Partaking in the Lord's Supper is a way of saying this. It's a way of saying this simultaneous affirmation and negation of God. It's to say, in some ways, God is dead and long live God. God is dead, long live God. Perhaps Christianity is about a kind of, perhaps Christianity is, is as much about a kind of atheism as it is about a kind of theism. The God of religious law is dead and a God of pure love is resurrected. The all-powerful supreme being on high is dead and a God who inhabits this broken and perfect world and us lives. This Holy Spirit lives now in us as we give ourselves over to Christ's virtues of love and justice and care for each other. And so let's meditate now on the life of God in us as we receive Holy Communion. The way we do that here on Sunday mornings right now is you come forward, you take a, one of these cups of, of just grape juice and one of these gluten-free crackers. <laughs> And return to your seat, and as Mac leads us in song, you take, um, take that uh, when you're ready. Let's partake in the Lord's Supper now. Get down slowly Discover our hearts are dumb There's nothing that holy In loving like drunk kids love And I've forgotten Where I was
I see you in the spotlights In visions I'm saving now Before we are parted I'm rivers of words somehow I'm still besotted But sobered up So let's drink Drink the best wine now While we're strong and we are proud Until lightning strikes us down and you'll eat, eat till you are full Cutting straight through all the bowl I will accept you, warts and all It's weird and unnerving Forsaking my own life now Cause this is a burden I can't seem to do without When time is rotten We soldier on I wanna be nearer I wanna be close behind A little bit clearer A little bit hard to find And I've forgotten Who I was So let's drink Drink the best wine now We are strong and we are proud Until lightning strikes us down And you'll speak Speak till you are whole What is clear is what is gold You're only human after all
All right. So questions, comments uh, about this concept of atheism as purification today? Um, yeah, any of you online, you can always raise your voice that way too by unmuting and <clears throat> maybe we can hear from you. Yeah, Jen, and I'm going to give you the mic so that um, people online can hear you. Where'd the other one go? Oh, there it is. All right, I think they both work. So I'm in a book club right now. And we're reading a book called God is a Black Woman. Cool. And I've only like read the first two chapters, but it's kind of in this vein of like rejecting white male God. Yeah. And kind of having to unlearn everything that he has become in our lives. Mm -hmm. So, and discovering a God that you don't have to perform for and that you don't have to be perfect for and it really truly does meet you where you are yeah because this the concept of white male god does not right so i think that was just very much in line with that you know purifying yourself of this yeah toxic concept that's so. really interesting all right that's thank you for sharing that that's that's beautiful what's the name of the book by the way uh it's God is a black woman. God, that's the actual yeah. name. God is a black woman. That's perfect. I think I've actually heard of that. Um, Max, you have? Yeah. I look to you because I feel like you're up on these things better than most. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds great, right? And um, I'm so glad you resonate with that idea that this, that, that, that this, there is a kind of atheism that's actually closer to, you know, this, this kind of Christian theism that I hope that we aspire to, so to speak. Yeah. Then other kinds of, you know, Theism, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's really good, Jen. Thank you. Um, somebody else today, questions, comments, maybe about this intersection between atheism and theism. Anything? Yeah, Nathan. Here you are. So I was reading an essay from Father Richard Rohr this past. Yes, always week. good stuff from him. Yeah, and it was about eminence and transcendence. Yeah. And um, and I found it really helpful because he was describing that we've always had this pressure throughout history to choose between transcendence and imminence. It's a choice. And in the West, the binary, you it's have the to binary. Do and then and when, when we say transcendence, the God that's up there, that's out there, you can't completely know. And imminence is the God that's here among us, you know, with the natural theology. And in the West, when we have to choose and that we get in that tension, we always go to transcendence. We default to it's a transcendent God. And then maybe in the East, they they default to imminence god is here and it's among us but what he this essay was about is talking about the trinity which is so confusing you know like we've struggled for so long to understand what a triune god looks like and the early church fathers in the first couple centuries fought over this and the church split over it throughout history but what he was suggesting is that you don't really the triune god the trinity is a God that is both transcendent and imminent at the exact same time. You have the father image, the father God image. And I know that can be triggering for some, but like there's God, the father, but then the Christ and the Holy spirit are, that seems transcendent. And then this Christ and the Holy spirit are more imminent. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, then it's like, Oh, the Trinity starts to make a little bit more sense from a philosophical yeah. way if you don't have to choose, but we've been choosing so long of like praying to a God that's up there, but 
struggling to feel God in our heart or feeling God in our heart, but not understanding what it means to have a God that's out there. Um, but you don't have to choose. It's yeah. both like that. God is God. And it's just a wonderful thought, I think, because it's so big and, and can be so powerful. Yeah. So personal and yet awe-inspiring at the same time. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, man, for sharing it. Yeah, Steve, would you grab that? Actually, just hold on to it for me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really good, Nathan. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, in a sense, you're letting go of, you know, thinking in dualities is a big part, I think, of growing spiritually, learning to think more holistically about some of these complex ideas like transcendence and imminence. I think has a lot to do with, again, growing spiritually and letting letting go of the need to separate everything into neat categories. And, you know, that's kind of a conservative approach <laughs> to a lot of things, but specifically religion, right? This need to control and to create, you know, put everything in rigid categories. You know, that's really good. Thank you. Um, other thoughts today um, about any of this? I want to close us with a benediction that's um, better than the computer telling us recording has stopped. <laughs> uh, this benediction is from the Irish poet Patrick o o uh, Otama. Am I pronouncing that right, Steve? Patrick, you're nodding yes because you, what's that? Otuma, thank you. I think that's better. Yeah. Uh, this benediction is called Go in Pieces. And of course, it's a play on that classic benediction that I say, go in peace, right? But this is go in pieces. And it's a perfect benediction for today. Here it is. The task has ended. Go in pieces. Our faith has been rear-ended, certainty amended, and something might be mended that we didn't know was torn. And we are fire, bright, burning fire turning from the higher places from which we fell, emptying ourselves into the hell in which we'll find our loving and beloved brother, mother, sister, father, and friend. And so, friends, the task has ended. Go in pieces to see and feel your world. Thanks for being here today, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.